If you turn in the back of that blue psalter to page 74 behind the songs, you'll find article 12 of the Belgic Confession of Faith. We'll go along here to article 12, seeing that uh, we have said enough this time around about the doctrine of the Trinity and, of course, the divinity of Christ and of the Holy Spirit in connection with that doctrine. So, Article 12, we'll just uh, read this article and then I turn to the Scripture following that. I'll read it. You may follow along. We believe that the Father, by the Word that is by His Son, has created of nothing the heaven, the earth, and all creatures when it seemed good unto Him giving unto every creature its being, shape, form, and several offices to serve its Creator, that He also still upholds and governs them by His eternal providence and infinite power for the service of mankind, to the end that man may serve his God. He also created the angels good to be His messengers and to serve His elect, some of whom are fallen from that excellency in which God created them into everlasting perdition, And the others have, by the grace of God, remained steadfast and continue in their first state. The devils and evil spirits are so depraved that they are enemies of God and of every good thing, to the utmost of their power as murderers, watching to ruin the church and every member thereof, and by their wicked stratagems to destroy all, and are therefore by their own wickedness adjudged to eternal damnation, daily expecting their horrible torments. Therefore we reject and abhor the error of the Sadducees who deny the existence of spirits and angels, and also that of the Manichees who assert that the devils have their origin of themselves and that they are wicked of their own nature without having been corrupted. That introduces us to the theme of Uh, God's creation in the Belgic uh, Confession, and we turn with reverence to the uh, Word of the Lord in Genesis chapter 1 tonight. Genesis chapter 1, and through the course of the sermon we'll be reading Uh, the whole chapter, but let me just read uh, to us from the first two verses of Genesis 1 and then chapter 2, verse 1 also. This is uh, God's Word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Then chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. So far the reading of God's holy word. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of the creation from its beauty to its breath to its order and its intricacies, all of creation is a magnificent, awe-inspiring theater for the manifestation of God's majesty and glory. 
In other words, God made everything to put Himself on display. When you think of everything that He has made, it came into being exactly because He wanted to display His eternal majesty and glory. And there are two questions that we want to ask about the Lord's creation tonight. First of all, what did He make exactly? And second, how does He describe the creation which He has made? How does He describe it to us who are part of His creation that keeps us awestruck at His majesty and His glory when we think about Him creating it? So what did He make? And then how does He describe what He made in order to focus our minds on the fact that the, all of their creation really does display His majesty and glory? Those are the two questions. First of all, what did God make? And of course, if we wanted to answer this question exhaustively, we would be here forever. Because if you want to describe in detail all of the things that he has made, not just the visible things, but the invisible things, you want to describe all the laws that uh, he upholds to direct everything that goes on in his world, we'll be here forever. So obviously, we're looking to answer this question specifically, what exactly did God make? And let's look at Genesis 1.1. The question that we're asking really is, what does Genesis 1-1 say that God made? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, what is the heavens and the earth? What does that mean? Different interpreters have understood Genesis 1-1 differently, but... We're going to say tonight that when the Scripture tells us that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, what it means is that God has created two registers or two realms of reality. And one realm of reality is the invisible realm in which He with all of His angels will dwell. And that's called in Genesis 1-1, the heavens. And then all of the visible things that we see in the world, including the sky and the universe, and what sometimes the Scripture itself calls the heavens, are here in Genesis 1-1 categorized as the earth. Now this is important to understand because we must know that God Himself existed from all of eternity even before the invisible realm of the heavens, and the, which of course includes all of the angels who dwell in that invisible realm, God Himself dwelt in Himself from all of eternity before anything beside Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit came into being. When Moses says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, Moses, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is saying that God first created all of the invisible realm in which He would dwell along with all the uh, spirits who are invisible, and then he created the earth. That is everything visible. That's all of the universe and the vast expanse that we are able uh, to see and to detect with our senses. God created the heavens and the earth. He was eternally before all of that. And he alone existed from all of eternity. He needed to create the invisible realm in which he dwells. How do we know this? We'll turn to Genesis 2, verse 1. And think specifically of how the language of chapter 2, verse 1 reflects what was in Genesis 1-1. Thus, after telling the story, thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all of their vast array. The heavens and the earth were completed in all of their vast array. Now keep your finger there and turn with me. I invite you to turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 9, 
verse 6. It's page 763 of the Bibles in the benches. This is the passage that it helps us to understand that Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 2-1, when it's talking about heavens and the earth, is talking about the invisible realm, the heavens, and the earth, the visible realm, anything that we can see, the vast expanse of all of the universe as we uh, can see it and explore it and enjoy it. Nehemiah 9.6 is obviously, as you listen to this verse, Nehemiah, Nehemiah 9.6 is obviously an explanation or an expansion of Genesis 2.1. I'm going to read Genesis 2.1 again first and listen. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. Now Nehemiah 9.6. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. Now this passage sounds very much like, has a lot of very familiar vocabulary to Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. It's talking about the Lord having completed all of His creation in all of its vast array and all of its beauty and its variety. But look at the two kinds of reality that are recorded here in Nehemiah 9.6 that God created. You alone are the Lord, and first of all we have described here what is visible. What is, according to Genesis 2.1 and 1.1, the earth. You alone are the Lord, you made the heavens. Now what heavens is it talking about? Even the highest heavens and all their starry hosts. That's the heavens that are visible to us. So that's what we look out like in space. And we see all the starry hosts. We see the stars. And the stars are in the heavens. That's in the sky or in outer space or whatever name that uh, people will use to describe it. You alone are the Lord, you made the heavens, even the highest heavens and all their starry hosts the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, all of that, the heavens that we see, the starry hosts that are in those heavens, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, you give life to everything. What we're saying is that is referring to the earth in the categories of Genesis 1-1 and 2-1, the heavens and the earth, all of those things visible, but also in Nehemiah 9-6, it says, you, Lord... May the multitudes of heaven that worship you. Now, what heaven is that talking about? Well, we know that sun and the moon and the stars don't worship the Lord actively. When the scripture talks about the sun and moon and stars worshiping him, they're personifying those things. But what multitudes of heaven worship the Lord? Well, it's the angelic beings, isn't it? The spirits who have been created to worship him constantly. Some of the uh, angels we read of in heaven, that's why we're, they were created, to constantly be around the throne of the living God and to praise Him continually. Now, we don't see them, do we? But they're real. They exist. They are spiritual beings existing in the invisible realm. The multitudes of heaven, Nehemiah 9, 6. And that use of heaven is what we find in Genesis 1, 1 and Genesis 2, 1. The heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast race. So we're saying that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, refers to God creating the invisible realm, first of all, in which He dwells, in which all of the spirits dwell, in which the saints who have called to, be go, to go home with the Lord before the final resurrection, where they dwell along with God right now, that is the heavens that have been created, and the earth is all of the things that we see. This is what he has made. 
Second Chronicles 18.18 18 confirms this idea of God creating the invisible realm with all the spirits, all the angels, and all the now uh, saints of God who have uh, gone to be with Him, whose bodies are in the grave awaiting the resurrection. Second Chronicles 18.18 18, Micaiah continued, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on His throne with all the hosts of heaven standing on His right and on His left. When we hear the word heaven in Scripture, when we hear it in Genesis 1, 1 and 2, 1, and in these verses that I'm reading, what it means is that invisible realm. Psalm 103, Praise the Lord, all you His angels, you mighty ones who do His bidding, who obey His word. Praise the Lord, all His heavenly hosts, you His servants who do His will. Here's that word heaven to describe the area where the spirits live, where God Himself dwells that's invisible to us. Psalm 148.2, Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His heavenly hosts. Colossians 1.16, For by Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by Him and for Him. So what did God make According to Genesis uh, chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, God not only made everything that we see, which is categorized as earth, and by the way, in Genesis 1.1, verses 2 and following, all of the story of the creation account are referring to the realm of the earth. So even the sky, which can be, and the things that are labeled throughout the Genesis chapter 1 as the heavens are not referring to that invisible realm where all the angels dwell, but they're referring to the visible realm, uh, the earth. But that is what God has created. The invisible realm, He is Lord of that. He is Lord over the visible realm. That is what God has made. He is the Lord over all of it. How does, this is our second question tonight, how does God describe His creation to us who are part of that creation to keep us awestruck at His majesty and His glory? Now, this is sort of a strange question, but I want to tell you why it's important. I mean, it's an objective fact, it's the truth, that God made everything, that all of the creation is a grand theater for Him to display His glory. But it's not just that it's self-evident that He is glorious through His creation, although we've said that's true as we went on before. People who walk around in the world, they don't have an excuse for rejecting God or not believing in the true God because they're walking around in His creation and that is evidence enough that He is real. And it points to His truth and His majesty. But what we're saying here is God actually describes His own creation and His relationship to His creation in a way that for us who are sensitive to the revelation, the Word of God, us who by the power of the Spirit have the Word of God, when we are sensitive to how He describes it, He even... He even refines in our own thinking how all of the creation is made for His glory and how He transcends all of it. Let me tell you what we're talking about. How does He describe His creation so that we are more, even the more awestruck at His majesty and glory? Well, look at how He describes in Genesis chapter 1 creating the earth. Now, notice we said, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens, the invisible realm, in which he and all the angels dwell, and the earth. And then everything in verse 2 and following is talking about the realm of the earth, the visible things. Now look at how he goes about describing creating the earth. What you're going to see is a pattern emerging here. What he does is he creates a kingdom on each of the first three days. And then on the next three days, he creates a king to rule over each of those kingdoms. Let's look at day one. 
We're looking for God to create a kingdom and then place particular kings over that kingdom and a pattern will emerge. Day one, verse three. God said, let there be light and there was light. God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from darkness and God called the light day and the darkness he called night and there was evening and there was morning the first day. So on the first day, it's very obvious. God creates light. He speaks light into being. He separates the light from the darkness. He says there's light and there's darkness. That's what's there. That's the first kingdom that he creates. What happens on day two, verses six through eight? Let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it, and it was so, and he called the expanse sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. So what do we have? First of all, we have light created, and then we have separation from light and darkness. That's one kingdom. Now here's another kingdom. It's the kingdom of the waters. The expanse separating the waters called the sky. Day 3, verses 9 through 13. God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. And God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, bearing seed according to their kinds and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and morning the third day. What we're saying here is that God has created now three kingdoms that need to be inhabited by a king. The first kingdom is the kingdom of light and darkness. The second kingdom is this expanse separating the waters called the sky. And the third kingdom is the dry land and seas appearing and the vegetation that's flowing forward from Uh, the separation of the dry land and the sea. Now, let's see how the Lord populates these three kingdoms with their kings. And I want you to think about the language of, of kingship and ruling that is evident as he places the kings in their various realms of the creation. Day four, verse 14. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the night from the day and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. Listen to this. God made two great lights. The greater light to govern. Hear that word? To rule, to govern the day. And the lesser light to govern, to rule the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern, to rule the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. So on day one, God makes the light, and he separates light from darkness. And on day four, he places in that kingdom the rulers over that realm of creation, if you will. The sun, the moon, and the stars, the kingdom of light and darkness, now have their kings. Then we do it again. Day five is going to correspond to day two. Look at verse 20. God said, let the water teem with living creatures. Let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing and every moving thing with which the water teems according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase in the earth and there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. 
So you had on day two the kingdom, which was the expanse separating the waters called the sky. And on day five, you have the fish and the birds taking their place in that realm of the creation. The kings ruling over that aspect of their kingdom. And then, of course, it culminates on day 6 and verse 24. God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock creatures that move along that ground, and wild animals each according to its kind, and it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let us make man in our own image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule, subdue it, you hear that? Kingly language, rule, again, kingly language. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours. To all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. On day three, he brought the dry land and the seas to appear and brought forth vegetation. And then on day six, he brings the kings into that kingdom, the rulers into that realm, which are the land beasts who will live on the ground and mankind who will not only uh, work the ground and subdue it, but will rule over all of the creation. So you see, there's this pattern here. All that to say, there's this pattern here. This is how God describes the creation of the world. He wants you to think about the idea that there are realms and kingdoms being created that are then populated and ruled over by the kings appointed to rule over them. And then comes the climax of this series of kingdoms being created and kings ruling over those realms. The climax of this picture of God's creation is what? It's verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2. The heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. And listen, by the seventh day, the Lord tells us, he had finished the work that he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all of his work and he blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of the creating that he had done. What does it mean that God rested? Think about that for a minute. Obviously, God did not get tired. This is anthropomorphic language, meaning it's the language of our experience as human beings being used to describe something about God, but what is it describing? Well, certainly in one sense, we know from our experience that when we're called to do our work and maybe we do our work well and we become physically weary and we sit back on the couch and we think about what we did and we take pride in it, right? We're satisfied because the Lord has called us to do a particular task as we go about in the creation and we find fulfillment in doing our work. Of course, it's always mixed in with the common curse that we suffer under, but we know in a sense what it means to rest from our work. It's not just that we're tired. It's that we're satisfied with what we've done. But you see, it's more than that here. Because the Lord rests, meaning He takes His throne. He is the one 
who demonstrates himself to be the culmination of this pattern of kingdoms being created and their kings being placed in it. And you see, the kings get progressively more mighty and more significant. I mean, first, you just have the sun, the moon, and the stars. And then you have things that have the breath of life, the fish and the birds. And then you have the crawling things, the land beasts, culminating in what? The, the, the great creation king, which is man, made in the image of God, and then you come to the height of this series, he is the glorious king, he sets over all of the realm that he has created, it's all big one kingdom, and he sits down on his throne, which is the creation, and he says to everybody, look what I have done, I am the Lord, I am eternally righteous and majestic and powerful, and look what I have done. And this is how he describes his creation, as being enthroned in Micah 1, 2, for example. Hear, O peoples, all of you listen, O earth and all who are in it, that the sovereign Lord may witness. The Lord is from his holy temple. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads the high places of the earth. And there it's describing, what does it mean the Lord is coming from His holy temple? Well, that's the invisible realm that He's talking about. He has made the invisible realm and all of the earth that we read about in Genesis 1 as His dwelling place. It's His throne. It's His great palace to show everybody that He's the King. Isaiah 66, it's even more clear. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne. Speaking of the invisible realm, it's my throne. I made it so that you will see that I sit on it and I rule over everything. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. I have created it and I inhabit it to show you my splendor and my majesty. Where is the house that you are going to build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things so that they come into being, declares the Lord. So he has made all of the invisible realm, he has made all of the visible realm, the earth, and he has described it in the sense of him being the king, sitting down in all of his creation, which is his palace, sitting on it as his throne, dwelling in it, as the one who rules over all things. Now the reason why he does that is really to, to combat the sinful understanding that we have of God that he's basically like us because this is the idea that we've inherited from our forefathers or that, that God doesn't have a right to rule over his creation and that we, we don't have to be submissive to what he says about himself. You see, that's all a lie. And he describes himself as the king dwelling on the throne of all of his creation in this, this palace which is all his creation to combat this idea. What do I mean by that? Well, in the time of Moses' writing, let, let's get the timeline correct. Obviously, Moses is writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit about the very beginnings of everything. I mean, nothing existed before what Moses is talking about happened. And then he created it. But a lot of time went by before, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses actually wrote these words. And obviously, Moses wrote these words much after the fall of our first father, Adam, who was talked about in the story. One of the ways in which the ancient mythologies and the ancient pagan religions, which of course all of humanity was plunged into immediately after Adam fell, one of the things, one of the ways in which they described the creation was that 
creation comes as a consequence of a god battling another god and sort of a byproduct of the fight is that they're fighting, they're fighting, they're fighting and spinning off from one of their battles after one of the gods is defeated is the creation of the world in which, uh, over which this particular god rules. So people of the ancient world who would have been dwelling around the, uh, the Israelites who had received this book, they were teaching their children that this world was created as a byproduct of a, of a wrestling match essentially between a couple of gods who were fighting it out and one of them died and one of the, the, some of the stuff that spun off out of the fight off of one of the gods became the world in which they lived. And so you see this idea of a god ruling over his creation, what, the way that the pagans described this world which spun off from the God was to say that this world was his throne. Because he would sit on his throne in victory over the king that he had defeated. The way he would sort of rub it in the face of the God that, uh, that he defeated or she defeated would be to, to then sit over the world and say that they owned it. And so God, by saying that the truth is that he created the world as his palace from all of eternity when nothing else existed. He's combating these mythologies. He's telling the Israelite people, well, look, they have one thing right. There is a transcendent being over the world, but let me tell you what they don't have right. They don't have right that somehow this world came into being by spinning off of me. No, I created everything out of nothing. And these false gods talk about the temples that you have built to them, or you talk about the temples that you've built to these false gods, and you think that they're ruling over this world. Let me tell you how it really is. All of creation is my temple which I made to dwell in. And I am transcendent over the world. And it's also, he tells of the story this way, to contrast his power with the vain pride of mankind. You know what this is about. Just think about earthly kings. What happens when politicians rise to power? By and large, they become corrupt. Now, that's not an insult to people that we like or what have you, but it's just true, isn't it? Generally, of, of rulers in the world, you have nations rising and falling. You have people with very uh, much power and very much temptation for material things, and what happens? They become corrupted by and large. And you see kings, and this is just not only in... Eastern cultures today, you see kings and people of high a position and authority just surrounding themselves with all kinds of things that are about them. Statues to their own glory and their own honor and marble and gold after marble and gold being built on the backs of all of their people. People taking pride in the power that they have and the, the control that they have and the authority over people. And they look at all their possessions and the means of the power and they take confidence in that as if they gave it to themselves and as if they can uh, maintain their power and their authority by themselves. That's all a lie. The Lord says, listen, you want to know who the true king of the palace is? The whole creation is my palace. You show me any palace that man can build and I'll show you the entire invisible realm and I'll show you all of the, the earth that you can see and then you tell me who's the king. You tell me you can harness the power of everything in this created world and I will show you who can talk to me. 
all of the symbols of power and all of the great riches that kings and presidents and rulers of this world have would rise up to make their claims more boldly than they should, are defeated by how God presents himself as the king who sits in the palace, which is all of his creation, not just some little palace in some country, not just some white house on some east coast. Hear, O peoples, all of you listen, O earth and all who are in it, that the sovereign Lord may witness against you. The Lord from his holy temple, look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads the high places of the earth. Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build for me, and where will my resting place be? My hand has made all these things. That's how they came into being, declares the Lord. He has made all of the invisible realms, all of the angels. He has made everything that we see, anything that we can even think of that's in truth and exists, he has made. And he reveals that he has made it as a king who makes it and then sits down on his throne over it, dwells in it to reveal to us that he is majestic and glorious. He is God. We are not. It is his world. And we have the privilege by the grace of Christ to be restored, to know him and serve him our great heavenly King, all of our days. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you are the great King. And though mankind would rise up to take pride in itself and in all of our accomplishments, we're forced again tonight to humble ourselves and see that, that you are the ruler of everything and that nothing existed before you. And it stretches our minds even to consider that. And who are we that you would even look down on us at all, O oh Lord? Thank you for the great privilege of worshiping you and finding our only true fulfillment and our only comfort in life and in death in the knowledge of, of you by your grace uh, through Christ. Keep us humble. And would we not live for ourselves, for our own uh, peace and satisfaction per se, but for the glory of God? Until the great day, O oh Lord, when all of our Satisfaction will be perfectly in line with your will. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.